Hey movie lovers, before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to acknowledge that uh, every once in a while we make a mistake. This week, however, we kind of made a big mistake. Uh, we're going to talk about our favorite pre-title sequences here. These are scenes that take place before the opening title credits, where you see the title of the movie and who stars in the film usually. And this is an example of us being so confident about something and yet being so, so wrong. And in this case, uh, one of our picks was exactly that. So, so wrong. For some reason, we were under the impression, confidently, strongly, that we didn't even double check, that Inglorious Bastards has a pre-title sequence that includes Hans Landa paying a visit to a farmer. Well, when I was gathering a clip of that scene to share on Instagram, I discovered I was woefully mistaken. Uh, that is actually a scene that takes place after the titles of the film with with the cast and everything rolls and then it shows chapter one and then it shows uh the view of the car coming down the drive so unfortunately that was my pick for number one favorite pre-title sequence what that means is actually my number two pick which i won't reveal here is actually my number one and what didn't make it to my list that i speak to which is the pre-title sequence from 1991's Beauty and the Beast probably would have ended up being my 12th favorite pre-title sequence. And uh, Inglorious Bastards does show up on, on Shanna's list as well. I can't speak for what would have necessarily taken over her number 12 spot if everything was moved down one and adjusted accordingly. So, apologize uh, in advance. You don't have to email you don't have to comment anything i i caught it while editing and uh you know just a little grace at least you'll enjoy our thoughts on the scene regardless and understand that mistakes happen all right with that out of the way on with the show i'm jeff gibson and i'm shanna paxton and we are the, the movie, movie lovers. lovers welcome hello to another episode of the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In this episode, it is our film faves episode where we count down our favorites of a particular topic. Typically, the idea for this segment is to give you an idea of our taste in movies, maybe bring attention to something you have not seen yet or even heard of before. It's kind of a, a part of expressing our joy and love of film. Now, in this case, we are talking about our favorite pre-title sequences, also known as prologues, also known as cold opens, whatever you want to call them. They are scenes that exist at the very beginning of a movie before the title and credits roll. 
Okay. So some of them, at, at most, you'll see like studio logos and it might say like so-and-so presents and then it'll play the scene. And then after the scene, you'll see the title and the cast credits and it'll proceed with the story of the movie. So that's what we're talking about. Those movies that have pre-title sequences and our favorites of those. The perfect example of this is, of course, the James Bond franchise. Ever since mm-hmm. From Russia With Love, and maybe this was the first ever, I don't know. but there, And that was made through an editing decision uh, by accident, essentially. They've had this, this scene that happens before their title opening title sequence right and the, the, the that franchise is really known for their opening title sequence but now also for their pre-title sequences ever since from Russia with blood so you know there are franchises like that where it's like oh there's a, a, several of them which one do i pick that's my favorite doesn't make it onto my list that was one of the struggles i had with my list in addition to a couple dozen at least other uh, pre-title sequences to consider that I was able to find from our collection and any research I made. Shanna, uh, what what was it like for you trying to research and craft this list? Was it hard? Was it overwhelming? Was it easy? What was it? It was a little difficult in that it's an exercise, right? Because we're only looking at the first few minutes of the film, mm-hmm. max eight, ten minutes. We watched one that was like, what was that Mission Impossible one? How long was it? Uh, it, was, it was long. Yeah. The, it was like 18 yeah. minutes. The long ones are usually eight to 12 minutes. Yeah. So I thought that what's inter- what was difficult was, okay, you only get to see a little piece of the film and then you have to stop. And the thing is, we were looking at pretty good opening scenes, which meant... They did their job and made you want to watch the rest of the film and not leave. Right. So it was difficult with that. It was mentally exhausting for me because I was like, oh, I'm like getting excited because I get to watch this film. Oh, no, wait, I can't. So Right. <laughs> and that's the hallmark of a really great pre-tile sequence, right? Something. Yeah. The idea is to get you settled into the movie, set the tone for the movie, maybe even set the stage for the plot of the movie or the Mm -hmm. conflict, those sorts of things. Or like it really entices like wanting to know what is going on here. There are a few on my list where it's starting off with something really intense and you want to know more because it's such little information. You want to know the rest of the story. Mm. So that was interesting. Did you also notice that this tended to be something particular to certain genres of movies? Like, I didn't come across very many dramas or comedies with pre-title sequences. Did did you happen to notice? Like, to me, it seemed more like an action or a horror thing more often than not. I found that, yeah, that's true. But sometimes it was also linked to a particular director. Like, Quentin Tarantino has a lot of openings that are really good yeah so i thought that that was interesting Mm -hmm. and then you know we talked about marvel movies and not a lot of them have opening scenes no no not pre-title sequences no and only one x-men movie had it so that was very interesting going through you know something like x-men has what like six movies Oh, gosh, it's somewhere around there at this yeah, point. Yeah, and like only one of them has 
what we were talking what we're talking about yeah today. which surprised me because i i there's certain opening scenes in that franchise and i would have sworn that those happened before the title credits but they did not at all it almost always started with the dna opening title sequence i also found that it was pretty common with uh stories like a shakespeare story or um something that's been done many times before like uh, dracula they have to set the stage of like no we're going to be different with this so it's almost like an interview (laughs) to you're the audience and we need to convince you to watch our movie because we know if we don't get you in the first five minutes, you're going to leave. So I thought that that was interesting. Hmm. Very good. Yeah, uh, I I will say it was hard to narrow it down to 12 for me. It it really was uh, difficult. And I'll speak a little bit more to that as we get into get started on my list. But this was not this was not easy. And and one thing I might do as we go through our list is I might include clips of the scenes that we're talking about that are our favorites too, just to give a little more context and understanding uh, or jog people's memories of what we're talking about too. So that that might help, I think, in this case. So and also usually in this segment we point people in the direction of where to find these movies on streaming since we're talking about just like a part of the movie i feel like that's a little less necessary you can always find these clips on youtube or you know you can hunt down these movies yourself beyond that if you want to see the whole thing but but yeah and and this the great thing about talking about pre-tell sequences is we're not we're not we don't have to worry about spoilers this is the, the beginning of the movie. We get to like, describe it in absolute detail if we want to. If we want to. We probably don't want to for the sake of time. But uh, we, we could, right? We don't have to worry about anything, giving away anything, because this is literally the beginning of the movie. You know, something that we forgot to mention is when this became a thing. Because generally with the movies from the beginning of time, it started with credits. Mm. So there were no opening pre-credit sequences yeah i should have expounded a little bit more on that i I kind of alluded to that with um the james bond movies i i think you're absolutely right the golden age the silent era also the credits were always the movies were always front-loaded with all of the credits right uh it was rare when that was not the case and even rarer if was if there was a scene that happened before the credits. I, I do think, and I don't know this with absolute certainty, but I do think that from Russia with Love from 1963, I think, is one of the earliest movies with a pre-title sequence. So, But I would be interested in, in if someone can fact check me on that one. And give some feedback if they actually know what the earliest movie was with a pre-title sequence. Because you're right. The Golden Age and the Silent Era before that all front-loaded with the entire credit sequence. So, all right. Let's get into it. What is your 12th favorite pre-title sequence? It is Watchmen from 2009. Mm-hmm. Threatened by Dr. Manhattan. Cornered. Maybe the whole world feels like that. 
Soviet ships have violated the territorial waters. Unforgettable. That's what you are. Unforgettable. Though near or far. Like a song. Just a matter of time, I suppose. This was one of those where you're like, what is happening? Someone is being thrown out of like, I don't know, 24 story building. Well, that's how it ends. But yeah. Yeah. yeah there's this fight that's happening and he's monologuing. Right? No. Comedian. Oh, okay. I must be thinking of something else. Anyway. So we have two characters fighting and then all of a sudden one is thrown out a window and dies. And now we have to figure out what's going on and what's the mystery and why did this person get murdered? And Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a great credit sequence as well. Opening credit sequence. Yes. I think we talked about that when we talked about our opening title sequences in a, in a past episode. Yeah. But it's really nice and darkly shot. And there's a lot of mystery to it. I always want to know why someone got murdered. So it hooked me. Yeah, it is the central mystery of the story. If you are a fan of the original graphic novel, it's it's it was exciting to see uh, this for the first time on screen because you are seeing it adapted, being it being adapted pretty well right off the bat, and so. And uh, what was it? His what is his name? Hen, who plays the comedian? Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I think it came. It just came to me. Uh, he was really great in in that as well. He played that character very well. So that's an excellent pick. So number twelve was the hardest slot for me to fill because I feel like there's at least three other pre-title sequences that I could have put here. But I, I kind of felt like I had to have a James Bond movie in my, oh, in okay. my list. You know, I, I kind of feel like you can't not have a James Bond movie in, in your list. If, if you're a fan of pre-title sequences, this is like pretty much the series that's known for pre-title sequences. And so I decided to use the spot for Skyfall. Now... That's a good choice. Thank you. Is it because Skyfall is your favorite James Bond film, or is it because of the pre-title sequence? No, this is because of the pre-title sequence exclusively. I was actually as a toss-up between GoldenEye and Skyfall as to which one I enjoy most. I decided to give it to Skyfall because it it goes on for a while. It's, It's James Bond trying to um uh, get this guy who has it, it's like a hard drive more or less around his neck this tiny little piece of tech that has a list of every agent and if he gets away then um agents in mi6 can be exposed right which is would be disastrous right so james bond is chasing this guy and it, and it it goes through a building and then it becomes this uh this 
a chase in a vehicle and then it goes from one vehicle to motorcycle chase and then the motorcycle chase becomes a, a fight on a train and then you know he uses an excavator on a train and it just it keeps going on and it ends with James Bond being shot and it's one of three or four times where the where we think that James Bond is killed at the beginning of the movie or so, or is shot or some version of that right and it is incredibly thrilling and really cool and there's there's a lot to it that that goes on and it's also kind of unforgettable like the idea of of James Bond using an excavator to join two trains and then he cl- runs up the excavator's arm and jumps down onto the train and just kind of like shakes it off yeah makes himself look good again you know yeah. that sort of thing <laughs> even though he's already been shot in the shoulder yeah so it's a great great scene uh, it's a great way to start off one of the best films in the entire franchise. Skyfall from 2012 is my number 12. bleeding. They'll be too bloody late. You've seen us. Medical evac for Ronson five minutes away. Well, my number 11 is from 2012. It is Cabin in the Woods. Okay. And this is one of those something, like a lot is hap- a lot of action is happening, a lot of movement is happening, and you're like, what, what's going on? It's the sort of office lab type setting. Everyone's wearing a lot of white coats and shirts and... It's fancy and there's a lot of buzz and a lot of stress with our two main characters in that scene kind of being the more grounded ones, like not stressed out about anything really. We're not as stressed out as everyone else. Mm. And it's just like, are they having a party? Are they about to release some sort of 
life-saving thing. It's it's very intriguing and makes me want to sit through the rest of the movie, even if that means at certain times I have to put it on mute because it's a little too scary. Mm. Yeah, so that's really, that's the horror category, and I, I really enjoy that opening scene. It's also very innocuous, too. If you listen to the dialogue going on between Richard Jenkins and, uh, gosh, what's his name? Bradley Whitford. If you listen to the dialogue between them, it's like just two office uh, buddies talking. And, you know, they're talking about what, what they're going to do for the weekend. And, you know, one going to help the other with their cabinets or anything, you know, things yeah, like really that, you know. Guys. <laughs> and then just like suddenly the the title comes up and, and kind of a jump scare in the middle of this innocuousness. Yes. So that is a great, uh, a great one. Great pick. Guys, if we fail, then... Please, we haven't had a glitch since 98. We know what we're doing, Lynn. But we have it written down somewhere. You guys better not be messing around in there. Ooh, does this mean you're not in the betting pool this year? Big money? I am just saying it's a key scenario. No, I, I, I hear what you're saying. In 98, it was the chem department's fault, right? Where do you work again? Wait, it's coming back to me now. It's gonna be a long weekend if everyone's that puckered up. So you want to come over Monday night? I'm going to pick up some power drills, liberate my cabinets. Are you even listening to me? My 11th takes me back to my childhood in a way. Even though it's from 2018, it is the pre-title sequence to Bumblebee. escape pods. There are other Autobots scattered across the galaxy. We must reach them if we hope to survive. Optimus, this is our home. We have to fight for it. We will fight on, but we must find refuge first. I found a planet that's well hidden. Earth, you will travel there and establish a base for us. Once we've gathered the others, we'll join you. You must protect the planet. If the Decepticons find it, 
Then our people are truly finished. Now go. Good luck, soldier. I'll buy you some time. Which this pre-title sequence alone is better than most of Michael Bay's Transformer Transformers movies. It is a, a battle on Cybertron between the Autobots and the Decepticons. The Decepticons are taking over Cybertron, and and the uh, Autobots are trying to flee alive, you know, and scatter across the galaxy in search of uh, some other place for all of them to re regroup. And uh, it's just, it's everything that anybody my age who grew up with Generation 1 Transformers and the animated Transformers movie and the toys and played with the toys, anything those people like myself, would want out of a Transformers movie. Also, the Autobots actually look like look good instead of like a you know jagged trash. So um, <laughs> it's 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 so cool and so great, and I absolutely love it. And it's it, it is is uh, thrilling, and it's everything I would want in a Transformers movie just in those five to ten minutes. So that's. Bumblebee from 2018. That almost made my list. My nice. No, my number 10 is from 1984, so I'm going further back here. Nice. Yay. Uh, and it's Gremlins. Oh, excellent. What is it? Mogwai. What's he doing? Singing. He does that sometimes. I gotta have him. He's incredible. Tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a hundred dollars for him. No. Look, I've gotta have him. It's a present for my son for Christmas. It's exactly what I've been looking for, and I've been everywhere. I'll give you $200. That's $200. I'm sorry. Mogwai, not for sale. I thought you said everything at your grandfather's store was for sale. Grandfather! With Mogwai comes much responsibility. I cannot sell him at any price. Wait outside a moment. I'll be right out. Just go. Okay, mister. Here it is. Oh, right. What about your grandfather? Forget what he said. He's crazy. We need the money. Now, come on. You want it or not? I want it. 
you know, we see the dad being led around, I guess, Chinatown? Not around Chinatown, but he gets led into a store uh, down down in the basement in in the in that neighborhood. I think in San Francisco, but my no, yeah, I think maybe in San Francisco because I think he's on a business trip, right? He's on a business trip. He's an inventor. He's trying to get his inventions in different stores. Yeah, and so it was a really fun opening scene because we all know he ends up getting the Mogwai, and. But prior to that, he's actually trying to make a sale. Yes. You know, he's actually working really hard to go to different stores. And he looks in the store and he says, well, you have a lot of things. Yeah. And he lists them off. But what you don't have is my invention. Yeah. The bathroom <laughs> I just, buddy. I just thought that that was a great way yeah. to, you know, prospect. So I don't know. It made me think, can I go to some places and say, you got a lot of this and this, but you know what you don't have? good photography <laughs> yeah 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 so. yeah but he uh he hears these sounds right yeah and so this is on the list for you know entrepreneurship but also for our dog lady because when those sounds come from the mogwai lady's ears perk up and she's like what is happening and she's like absorbing the sound and Tilting twitching her, her head yeah. so yeah it's a really sweet moment with this mogwai and we don't even really well, we see him briefly, right? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Gizmo. I think from behind, if I remember correctly, the camera, I think, is behind him. So I think you yeah. see his profile and we're also through told, the cage. We're also told, oh, I'm not going to sell that to you. But then the grandson sells it to him yeah. and uh, gives the three rules. So now I'm intrigued. Like, when are the rules going to be broken? Because obviously they're going to be broken. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a story. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So that's Gremlins from 84. Great. Excellent. My 10th is my Quentin Tarantino pick. It is from 1992. It is his debut film, Reservoir Dogs, The Tipping Scene. Okay. The Great Tip Debate. All right, everybody cough up some green for the little lady. Come on, throw in a buck. Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping. Do you know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. <laughs> I don't even know a fucking Jew would have the ball to say that. Uh, let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. Uh, it's for the birds. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick. <laughs> I'd go over 12% for that. Hey, look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want to fill six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. Excuse me, Mr. Pink, but the last fucking thing you need is another cup of coffee. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I mean, these ladies aren't starving to death. They make minimum wage. And I used to work minimum wage, and when I did, I wasn't lucky enough to have a job that society deemed tip-worthy. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So I was working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? 
why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm very sorry the government taxes their tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. I mean, if you show me a piece of paper that says the government shouldn't do that, I'll sign it. Put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. And it's non-college bullshit you're giving me. I got two words for that. Learn to fucking type. Because if you're expecting me to help out with the rent, you're in for a big fucking surprise. You just convinced me. Give me my dollar back. Hey. Leave the dollars there. All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. Wait a minute. Who didn't throw in? Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink. Why not? You don't tip. You don't tip? What do you mean you don't tip? You don't believe in it. Shut up. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Come on, you. Cough up a bucket, cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. All right, since you pay for the breakfast, I'll put in. But normally, I would never do this. Never mind what you normally would do. Just cough in your goddamn <laughs> buck like everybody else. Thank you. Yeah, so we have our what will be our main cast of characters all sitting around in a diner. They're finishing a loving meal and and and, <laughs> and I guess meeting. And uh, it comes time to settle the tab, and everybody's gonna pitch in to tip the waitress, except what we learn to be Mr. Pink, played by Steve Buscemi, mm. who he stands his ground, he digs his heels, and he says. You know, I'm not going to tip somebody just for doing their job. You know, I'm going to tip outstanding service. And and it continues. And, and people think he's crazy for not tipping. And you hear these guys who you understand to be like, not necessarily mobsters, but very dangerous men uh, yes. who are organizing a, a, a bank heist, arguing like, but waitresses depend on their tips, you know, <laughs> in order to live and stuff. And it's just a brilliant piece of dialogue writing. People dialogue kind of overlaps each other. And you it's something that has continued ever since. Like people will actually who are cinephiles who know that scene, they will debate that who had the, the stronger point and the, um, where do you fall on the tip debate mm-hmm. of Reservoir Dogs? So I, I think that is a classic and a great one. And it's my 10th favorite pre-tile sequence. My next one is my Mission Impossible pick. There oh. are... Re- <laughs> Jeff just whipped his head right back around at me. There are several to choose from, and some, are, some of them are really, really good. But I love number five, Rogue Nation. Mm. Open the damn door. <laughs> I just, That's a good name for it. Yeah. I, I love it so much. Yeah. We don't see Ethan, but we see... We see the Jeremy Renner character, Simon Pegg's character. We even see Vin Rames, and and we we don't see Tom Cruise anywhere. But they're all talking about this this time sensitive, as per usual, issue that they need to get something off of a plane, and they they aren't doing that. <laughs> and now they're trying to hack into something in an illegal way and it's just really interesting and then all of a sudden tom cruise comes up a hill 
that's by an airplane wing and gets on there. Because the plane is taking off. The plane off, is, is now moving. Yeah. And he's holding onto the airplane for dear life. And Simon Pegg opens the door, but it's the back door. It's not the door where right. Tom Cruise is. And it's like, open the damn door. And you've yeah. got like three people freaking out at Simon Pegg, rightly so, to open the damn door. And we do get the door open. Tom Cruise, because two doors are open, gets whooshed into the plane, like basically knocks himself out just a little bit against what he needs, the cargo he needs to get off the plane, coincidentally. And uh, someone from the plane goes and checks it out and he hooks himself onto the cargo and whoops, out of the plane. So it's just insane, bonkers. <laughs> like You look at this man and uh, you look at the Ethan character and you're like, how is this person still alive? Because <laughs> you know, yeah. that would have killed me. <laughs> right. Yeah, the way he gets knocked around oh when God. he gets in the plane. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, Oof. And then there's like, there's definitely some whiplash and some muscle tearing or spraining of some kind right. because he's got his arms hooked in and oh. he gets ripped out of there. Yeah. Plan B, although technically it's a plan C. This isn't going very well. I am aware of that, Brand. You're not helping. Where is Ethan? I don't know. We're on radio silence. That plane cannot take off with the package on it. You understand? We're working on it. Luther, what the hell are you doing there? You're supposed to be on assignment in Malaysia. I am in Malaysia. I've been here two days. Benji needed my help. I didn't need help. I just I needed assistance. It's a different thing. The package is still on the plane. <laughs> We understand the package is on the plane. We're trying to cripple it remotely. You can do that. We can if the pilot left the satellite uplink switched on. Which he has. And how do you access the uplink? It involves hacking a Russian satellite. I can't authorize that. Which is why I didn't ask permission. We are under investigation for misconduct. The package is on board. What do you want me to do? Luther. I'm reading a heat bloom, Benji. The engines are starting. Yeah, I'm aware of that. But I can't do anything until I'm connected to the satellite. Benji, you're connected. Okay, great. The package is still on that plane. Check down the fuel pump. 
Uh, mechanicals are locked out. What about the electrical system? Oh, that might work. Uh, no. Hydraulics. Okay, stand by. No, oh, they're encrypted. Benji, the plane. Yes, the package is on the plane. We get it. Can you open the door? Ethan? Who are you? I'm by the plane. Benji, can you open the door? I... I... I will say that is a great bit of comic dialogue writing and it's very well played by Tom Cruise. Also just that last look he gives before the title sequence starts is, is, uh, is perfect. Yes. That is a great pick from dust till dawn is my ninth favorite from 1996. This is a pre-title sequence where we are in a a pit stop kind of store i think it's a gas station too if i'm not mistaken it's it got a gas uh gas pumps and you know it's it's a snack store kind of thing you know you can get liquor there and your your cigarettes or whatever and you have this cop this sheriff come in uh played by michael parks and he has this long conversation with the guy who's working at the store, uh, played by John Hawks, and they just shoot the shit. And then Michael Parks, is Texas Ranger, he he goes to the bathroom, and that's when we learn there's actually like a couple dangerous people who've got um, a couple customers hostage, and it, it becomes this like brilliantly written banter where. There's a question of whether or not John Hawk's character was signaling to the Texas Ranger, trying to say that they're in danger. And, and was he not? Or was he putting on a pretty freaking amazing Academy Award winning performance try, under the circumstances, trying to stay pretty freaking cool? Inside with air conditioner blasting all day long. Oh, is that right? That's right. Did you break for lunch or nothing? I'm by myself today, ate my lunch out of the microwave. Jesus H. Christ, Pete. When you gonna learn that microwave food to kill you faster than a bullet? Some of them damn burritos ain't good for nothing but a hippie when he's high on weed. Put me down a bottle of that Jack, will you? Yeah. I think I'm gonna get tanked tonight. What's the matter? Oh, hell. Been one long, goddamn hot, miserable, shit-ass fucking day every inch of the way. First off, me digging over blue chip got sort of sick because you got that goddamn mongoloid boy who's working the grill. I mean, that fucking idiot doesn't know rat shit from Rice Krispies. I eat breakfast by 9 o'clock, and I'm puking up pigs in a blanket like a sick fucking dog at 
Isn't there a law or something against retards serving food to the public? Well, they ain't ought to be. I mean, who in the hell knows what's going on in the mind of a goddamn mongoloid? Nadine should have hit that boy in the head and sold the fucking milk. You could sue these shit out of her, you know that? That kid belongs under a circus tent, not flipping burgers. You could own that fucking place. Oh, shit, Pete. What would I do that grease pit? Fine. Nadine's got to cross the bear. I need to take care of that potato head. I guess you heard about that shit up in Abilene, bank robbery. It's all that's been on the box all day. It killed some people, didn't it? Yeah. Killed four rangers. Three cops. One civilian. Took a lady bank teller hostage with him. Supposed to be headed for the border, which should bring him right my way. Get my hands on them crazy, sick fucking bastards payback time. I mean, I will get them. We'll get them. No, I don't doubt it. Well, I gotta drain my lizard. I might use your commode. Knock yourself out. Thank you. You're welcome. Asshole. Do you want this little girl to die, or that little girl, or yourself, or your bosom buddy with the badge? Now, I don't want to do it, but I will turn this place into the fucking wild bunch if I think that you are fucking with me. What do you want from me? I did what you said. You let him use the bathroom. No store does that. He comes in here every day and we bullshit. He's used my toilet a thousand times. If I told him no, he'd know something was up. I want him out of here, in his car, and down the road, or you can change the name of this place to Benny's World of Blood. Giving that pig signals. Are you kidding? I didn't do anything. He says you were scratching. I wasn't scratching. Are you calling him a liar? I'm not calling him a liar, okay? I'm simply saying if I was scratching, I don't remember scratching, and if I did scratch, it's not because I was signaling the cops. It's because I'm fucking scared shitless. Wait a minute. The guy's in the bathroom. Why don't I just go back there, shoot him in the back of the head, and we can get the hell out of here? Don't do that. Look. You asked me to act natural, I'm acting natural. In fact, under the circumstances, I think I had to get a fucking Academy Award for how natural I'm acting. You asked me to get rid of him, I'm doing my best. Well, your best better get a hell of a lot fucking better, or you are gonna feel a hell of a lot fucking worse. Everybody be cool. You be cool. You know, and, and it ends up in this big, huge bloodbath, ultimately, with explosions and... And you have George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino himself walking away as the whole place is blowing up and they drive off and then it gets into the title sequence. And it is so cool. It was one of the coolest things I had ever seen when I was a teenager. The whole movie is is like that. I love it so much. And it is definitely when talking about pre-title sequences, it was certainly one of a handful that immediately came to mind that I had to uh, I had to have on my list. So that's from Dust Till Dawn from 1996. My next one is from 99 
It's three hours and like eight minutes long. Not the pre-title sequence. No, but the movie uh, is Magnolia. Mm. And this is a very intense opening. Sort of. I don't know. Is I it intense? I thought it was. It's intense that there's so much happening. And I don't know. It gets my brain working because there's so much interweaving stories. Yes. And... That always makes me think, are there any loopholes? And so I'm paying attention very, mm. like, very quickly. We have different families, different characters, different places, and how this, this narrator is taking us through these different situations and telling us how th- these things are not just coincidences. I think not. So it's it's very interesting. It sets the stage for our 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 son was watching the the opening with us, and he was like, "Can we watch that now?" Mm-hmm. So it was very well done. Very curious. Very much makes you want to see well what happens next. What will the next story be? What will the next interweaving be? The tale told at a 1961 awards dinner for the American Association of Forensic Science by Dr. John Harper, president of the association, began with a simple suicide attempt. 17-year-old Sidney Barringer in the city of Los Angeles on March 23, 1958. The coroner ruled that the unsuccessful suicide had suddenly become a successful homicide. To explain, the suicide was confirmed by a note in the right hip pocket of Sidney Barringer. At the same time, young Sidney stood on the ledge of this nine-story building. An argument swelled three stories below. The neighbors heard, as they usually did, the arguing of the tenants. And it was not uncommon for them to threaten each other with a shotgun or one of the many handguns kept in the house. And when the shotgun accidentally went off, Sydney just happened to pass. What? Shut the fuck up! Added to this, the two tenants turned out to be Faye and Arthur Barringer, Sydney's mother and Sydney's father. When confronted with the charge, which took some figuring out for the officers on the scene of the crime, Faye Barringer swore that she did not know the gun was loaded. She always threatens me with a gun, but I don't keep it loaded. And you didn't load the gun? Why would I load the gun? A young boy who lived in the building, sometimes a visitor and friend to Sidney Barringer, said that he had seen, six days prior, the loading of the shotgun. Ricky, come here a minute. It seems that all the arguing and fighting and all of the violence was far too much for Sidney Barringer and knowing his mother and father's tendency to fight, he decided to do something. He said that he wanted them to kill each other, and that's all that they wanted to do is to kill each other, and that he would help them do that if that's what they wanted to do. Sidney Barringer jumps from the ninth floor rooftop. His parents argue three stories below. Her accidental shotgun blast hits Sidney in the stomach as he passes the arguing sixth floor window. He is killed instantly, but continues to fall, only to find, five stories below, a safety net installed three days prior for a set of window washers that would have broken his fall and saved his life, if not for the hole in his stomach. 
So Faye Barringer was charged with the murder of her son, and Sidney Barringer noted as an accomplice in his own death. And it is in the humble opinion of this narrator that this is not just something that happened. This cannot be one of those things. This, please, cannot be that. And for what I would like to say, I can't. This was not just a matter of chance. Huh. These strange things happen all the time. Uh, yeah. Magnolia. Right on. Excellent. My next one is Romeo and Juliet from 1996. Got a couple here from 1996. Apparently, this is Boz Lerman's sophomore effort, I believe. And my goodness, he adapts William Shakespeare's famous play in the most epic of styles with a extraordinary opening that, that starts with a TV set. Black background. All you see is a regular tube box TV with news on it. And the newscaster is serving as the narrator setting the scene for the play, mm. saying the words from the play um, in the opening. And then it cuts to like this epicness about like, Gosh, I can't remember um, where we where we lay our scene. I can't remember the darn uh, city. Um, I I don't remember. Is it Barcelona? No, it's no. no, 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 no. It's not like that at all. But oh, it it it, it sets that scene, what that city is like, and it's mm. huge and epic. And you see buildings with the Capulets and and with the two highest, you know, high, uh, skyscrapers. One is the Capulets. One is the. I just it, no? I, I literally just blanked. I literally. Just blanked on on the uh, Montagues, 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 right? Okay. Yeah, and and you see all these shots, these quick cuts, and this epic music, and it's just explosive and amazing. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm in for something here, and that is how Romeo and Juliet starts. And uh, I I completely forgot about it until I rewatched it and prep for this list, and I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove is now the two hours traffic of our stage. Two households, both alike in dignity in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. 
So I love it. It's my eighth favorite pretrial sequence. Romeo and Juliet from 1996. My next one is from 2004. It's a Zack Snyder. It's Dawn oh, of the Dead. Really? Interesting. I love that opening. Uh, this is a zombie film. Yes, of and... course. The remake of the George Romero movie. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we're, we're following a nurse. We're seeing, you know how some movies just take forever to set the zombie scene, make the zombies happen, give the after effect of how the how the world is going to deal with the apocalypse. Mm. And some of them just take so long. Some of it, sometimes it can be 20 to 30 minutes long to get through that foundation so that you can get to the really good stuff about apocalypse mm. uh, zombie in particular. And this does it in like less than 10 minutes and it's fantastically shot. There's a variety of cinematography moments where different colors, different backgrounds, different forms of light being used. It's like a mini movie in itself and it's a real work of art. And we're playing with color in a really unique way as well. And the dialogue is really great because we're starting in a hospital. I think we're starting in a hospital yes. to some extent. And one of the nurses is, you know, updating the doctor and the doctor says, well, why did you give them an MRI if such and such happened? And it was just interesting because it's like, oh, but go and see the results. Cause their brain probably has a little activity or none, blah, blah, blah. So and anyway. by the way, that nurse is Sarah Pauly. Very exciting. Who is now a director. Amazing. Since 2007, three years after that movie. Yeah. And a young Sarah Pauly mm-hmm. also. I think she's in her late 20s at that point, if I recall correctly. So that was very cool. Uh, very cool. And then it just leads into one of the best opening title sequences ever. Also. Yeah, so. yeah. Where like the titles are like blood looking. And then yeah. it's like as if... They took a straw and blew the blood away. Yeah, right, thing. right, yeah. It was a little arts and crafts project that turned <laughs> into Grimm. <laughs> so my seventh favorite pre-title sequence is Avengers if Infinity War from 2018. You have had the privilege of being saved by the great Titan. You may think this is suffering. No. It is salvation. The universal scales tip toward balance because of your sacrifice. Smile. For even in death, you have become children of Thanos. I know what it's like to lose. Feel so desperately that you're right. Yet to fail, nonetheless. It's frightening. Turns the legs to jelly. 
I ask you to what end? Dread it, run from it. Destiny arrives all the same. And now it's here. Or should I say, I am. I forgot about this. This thing, talk about setting the tone. It literally starts with radio communication from a the Asgardian ship that survived Thor Ragnarok. And uh, it's, it's, you know, ba basically begging for their lives when Thanos attacks the ship. And what we see um, beyond the, the first image of the ships together is we see bodies on the floor and we we hear. Oh, shoot. I always forget. It's not Corvus Clave. Uh, one of one of um, Thanos's henchmen, he talks about how they should all feel thankful oh, about dying me. and and all this sort of stuff. And it, you know, it's it's a lot that goes down. Yeah. We see that Thor has been has fallen uh, during this whole battle, and he's not even able to stand up. And we have uh, the Hulk come out of nowhere and uh, trying to beat the heck out of Thanos, and Thanos beats the heck out of him. Which instantly sets the stage for how formidable Thanos is, because we've already seen what Hulk is capable of multiple times previously. And Heimdall is also fallen, and and um, he uses his last bit of power to transport Hulk out of the ship. He is killed, and for doing so, Loki tries to trick Thanos and and kill him he's killed and and the famous words by Thanos that really sets the stage for the next movie or two is no more resurrections like really like that just made you so fucking happy absolutely talk about stakes man talk about stakes everyone's gonna die <laughs> and you know and and in here Thor is forced to watch his friends and his brother die, be killed in front of him. And and so there's, there's an emotional weight to it, and it's really heavy. And I realize that whole movie is bookended by by death mm. and loss, and it's really, really great. And hopelessness. It's, yes. It's a really difficult movie to actually watch, and it's hard to remember, oh, we had to wait a year or so yes. before we got the next one to be able to know what was going to happen. Right. Yes. We had, and is this real? Right. We had to watch Ant-Man versus Wasp first and then Endgame. Uh, so, yeah. So Avengers Infinity War, really successful at what it's doing, setting the stage uh, from 2018. My next one is from 92. It is Dracula. Oh, Bram Stoker's Dracula yeah. by Francis Ford Coppola. That's right. This had a really good opening, and it was another one that our, our son was around for, and he he was, you know, if you don't know anything about Dracula or you wanted to know, well, where does that actually stem from? This is a great movie to watch, and it's just really so well made. Again, this is also like a mini movie. It could be its own little clip, and I just thought that it was very interesting. It's intriguing. It makes you have empathy for Dracula mm. uh, because we're actually – it's based on – who is it based on in history? It's actually using the historical figure Vlad the Impaler, which yeah. 
Brom actually based Dracula on. So a nice way to kind of connect those two and, and sort of, I guess, ground it. Yeah, in a way, sort of. I mean, if you can, as, as best you can, <laughs> as anything can, is grounded like this. in yeah. this movie. Yeah. Constantinople had fallen. Muslim Turks swept into Europe with a vast superior force, striking at Romania, threatening all of Christendom. From Transylvania arose a Romanian knight of the sacred order of the dragon, known as Draculia. Elizabetta, whom he prized above all things on earth, knew that he must face an insurmountable force from which he might never return. Um, anyway, it's beautifully shot. It's very emotional. There's so much that happens. He loses the love of his life and, and then makes this deal i guess no not is a, it a deal. deal or is no, it more he, like he a... swears okay you know he 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 curses god basically she's just and so, so smart he swears smart that idea. he's going to rise from <laughs> his death yeah and um essentially avenge his his love's tragedy yeah it was very interesting because there's a lot of like, oh, I wouldn't recommend that happening. Like he stabs a, a sort of... It's a cross. Like rock looking I think crucifix. It's, so. I'm pretty sure it's like a, a solid wood oh, crucifix. Okay. Yeah. Well, and then like blood comes out of it and it's like, yeah. oh, I don't know if that's normal. <laughs> yeah. I get people being angry about situations that are devastating towards God, but like oh, we're going to stab that, and oh, I don't know if that's right. So it's very, what are we in for? It's very epic. Yeah. It's very dramatic. For like 10 minutes. <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah. No, I, I remember seeing that when I was 12, and I'm like, I am in. Mm -hmm. I am hooked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so beautifully shot, uh, a, a great segment. That's Dracula. We're at the halfway point. My halfway mark sixth favorite pre-tile sequence is going back to one of the years that you mentioned before 1984 it is ghostbusters oh the ghostbusters yeah 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 man we uh. see a librarian this little old lady she's just going through Doing and a job filing books away getting and things, done. things start getting a little bit spooky books start floating across and all of a sudden, things escalate, and the Dewey Decimal System goes crazy. 
<laughs> she's uh next thing you know she's running down the halls scared wondering what the hell is going on she turns a corner and we do not see what she sees except we see a lot of light and glowing reflected onto her and her hair flies back and she screams and then we get the title it's a really iconic scream too it's very different well the entire uh pre-title sequence is it's one of the most remembered and, and uh, one of the greatest, for sure, and one of the best movies of the 80s. So I could not ignore Ghostbusters from 1984. That's my sixth favorite pre-title sequence. I didn't think of having that one because I was somewhat under the impression I couldn't have it. Oh! We didn't talk about this um, earlier in the recording, but we did talk about this off-cam or off-mic uh, where... We have this rule of our 12 favorite movies of all time can't really be on our list anymore because obviously they dominate. But here we're talking about a part of a movie. And our 12 favorite movies may not have a pre-title sequence. But this one was on your list, Ghostbusters. It does have a pre-title sequence. So, it, it, you know, because we're only talking about the part of the movie rather than the whole movie, you know, we kind of let that rule slide here. So, you could have had that. Did you? I'm, I'm curious what you have on your list instead. I was trying to find a way around it. Anyway, my next one is is on my my favorites, and I oh. guess I didn't realize until now. Is <laughs> um, X Men: Days of Future Past. Uh huh. Yes, it is. Yes. So, so that's over here. That did make interesting it in. that that one's one of your favorites. Tell tell us a little bit about that sequence. What happens in it? I think this is one of those unique ones mm. where if you knew if it had a story before the movie uh-huh. and you knew the story and you were excited about the story, if it's one of your favorites, then it was special, mm. I think, in setting the scene because I don't want to see, I know the DNA makes them different. I don't care. I don't need to see the DNA vault again, mm, mm. you know, which we had seen several times. Yeah, every single prior one. Prior to this one. And I, I was just over it for one thing, and they did something different here. Yeah. It's like they got to the point, they knew that there was a huge following, a huge fan base of this particular story, and they just got right into it. There was no futzing around. And instead of doing the whole... DNA genes going through here to see all the microscopic CGI level stuff. They actually show you the impact that being different had in this setting. So mutants or people that would become mutants were basically going to be executed. And so it was this very futuristic equivalent of. It's like a dystopia, right? Yeah. Uh, although I was going to use, it's basically this futuristic looking concentration camp and it's terrifying. And they're using, for me, it was interesting because they're using purple light, which isn't always what someone will use. They usually use green or yellow Mm. to kind of push the story along. But I, I just thought that that was an interesting choice. And we see someone who hasn't been captured, uh, tr- walking through as Charles Xavier is narrating how they got to this point. And this person pulls away ash or dirt and sees an X-Men suit. And I just thought that that was 
a great way to start because yeah you have the movie to fix it and if you don't fix it this is where you're going to end up Mm. so i also like movies uh opening sequences that are set like way in the future and are like a warning Mm. um so the rest of the movie they have to sort sort it out right lays the stakes out you know you talk a lot about the title sequences of the x-men franchise and and yet that particular movie we actually determined was our our favorite title sequence from that franchise because it was doing something different in Mm. the sense that it wasn't showing the dna Mm-hmm. It was showing the inner workings of the Sentinels of the future. Yeah, yeah, they changed that up, so that was interesting. Yeah, the ones that are hunting the mutants. Exactly. All right. So my fifth is uh, our, I think, our first overlap. Uh, it is Magnolia from 1999. Oh, cool. So I have almost always loved this pre-title sequence, the narrated by Ricky Jay. And I think actually this pre-tile sequence, it it, it does this dangerous thing of being like setting the expectations for the movie so high that I don't think the rest of the movie actually is uh, quite achieves where we start with it because this thing is so tightly constructed, this pre-title sequence. I don't think the film itself is as tightly constructed or as um, as clever as, as this pre-title sequence is. I, I like Magnolia. I think it's a really good movie. But boy, does it really set the bar high at the very beginning here with this the sequence that you talked about before that involves... You know, someone who loves to go scuba diving in a lake and he's somehow connected with uh, someone who is a seaplane pilot who also gambled. And and then also we hear the story about this guy who is going to jump off a building and how he's connected to this couple that was arguing and and what happens with all that. And it's just it's such brilliant brilliant writing and ricky jay has the perfect voice Mm. to had the perfect voice to convey this whole thing with his delivery it was it was excellent love magnolia's pre-title sequence it's one of the best things that paul thomas anderson has ever filmed Mm. what is your fourth favorite pre-title sequence again our overlap this is romeo and juliet okay cool 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 i mean it's okay not to like Shakespeare, all right? I'm Excuse not me. a huge Shakespeare fan. And I feel like Romeo and Juliet, as I get older, I'm like, this isn't a great story for the love part of it. Oh, I'm you did just not. just pissing off my husband right you now. You did not. <laughs> no, you didn't. I'm growing up and being like, stop. Just stop fighting. All of you stop fighting. You adults start acting like adults. Stop being kids. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so it's difficult for me to watch Romeo Juliet inspired stuff. It is. It's difficult. But. Which is like so many love stories. But okay, go ahead. That's what pisses me off. Okay. Okay. So I dislike Shakespeare. But how cool is it, this opening sequence? where they get you excited about Shakespeare. And they're like, come on, come join us. We're not going to be boring. We're not going to be fuddy-duddy. We're not going to force this down your throat. We're going to update this. We're going to make it exciting. We're going to have cool camera angles. And we're going to keep the language just how it is 
in the books so that you can Plays, hear the yeah. so that you can hear the language and and you know visually it's updated so the language stays constant and visually it's updated and that was lovely because what you're doing then is you're kind of attracting the, the people who are not into Shakespeare and it's an opportunity for them to try to connect with it mm. And so I did connect with this at a young age and really enjoyed it. It's just a beautiful idea to shock people if they thought they were going to come to a stuffy thing. It's a great way to shock them out of that and say, okay, reset. We're not giving you crap. We're giving you something amazing and different. Yeah, you know, that is a really good point because the only other... Uh, film version of this story previously the uh, literal adaptation was in the late 60s and it was a much more traditional kind of uh, filming of it from what i understand and so but that's one thing that boz definitely set out to do is to make this as uh relatable as possible well and what you have to remember as well as i grew up with a lot of bbc so if the kids' stuff wasn't on, and if the food shows weren't on and, and stuff like that, it was always fucking Shakespeare mm. or C.S. Uh, Lewis. Okay, gotcha. Uh, which I preferred, but, you know, most of the time it was bloody Shakespeare shit, so. Gotcha. My fourth favorite is from 2009. It is J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Now, ooh, nice choice. I don't know if you recall, but this starts with a USS, you know, Federation starship Kelvin running in across a black hole that all of a sudden this monstrosity comes out of that ends up being a Romulan ship. And this monstrosity suddenly fires upon this uh, this Federation ship, crippling it in in variety of ways. The captain is left with no choice but to but to board the Romulan ship, meet the captain, is killed almost instantly. And so the man who's left in charge of the ship when the captain's off is now in charge of saving the entire crew and families that are on this ship. Uh, that guy, that guy is a young Chris Hemsworth. Two years before Thor was released. Before anyone knew who Chris Hemsworth was. And uh, he plays Captain James T. Kirk's father really good casting it's really cool this whole interaction forever alters the timeline that we know it being uh, being the star trek history and and what happens and one thing leads to another the ship's got to go into a collision course into the romulan ship and unfortunately the autopilot isn't working so george aka chris hemsworth has to do it himself it's just um, a really... And meanwhile, his wife, played by Jennifer Goodwin, is in labor because of everything. And um, and they're communicating over uh, comms about the birth and what are they going to name their son. And it's just... It's actually incredibly thrilling and moving at the same mm. time. 
on our signal. They're launching again. Bravo 6 maneuver fire full Tiberius, you kidding me? No, that's the worst. Let's name him after your dad. Let's, let's call him Jim. Jim. Okay. Jim it is. 
Can you hear me? I love you so much. And uh, what's what's devastating about the whole thing, one of the last shots you see in this pre-tile sequence, is you see that the Kelvin doing a collision course into this monstrosity did nothing to the monstrosity. Yeah. It absolutely, like, barely scratched it, right? Which kind of sets the stage for, like, how big of a challenge, for lack of a better term, this, this villain is going to be, mm. right? If he's able to take out a starship just like that and and uh, uh, an actual ship crashing into it does nothing to it, this is going to be an uphill battle taking take, taking care of this bad guy. So uh, it's it's great. And then it leads right into the great My- Michael Giacchino score with the Star Trek logo being shown, the title sequence. It's wonderful. Love it so much. J.J. Abrams, Star Trek from 2009 is my fourth favorite pre-tile sequence. That's a really good choice. My number three is on my favorites. It's Inglorious Bastards. That's my Quentin Tarantino pick. Number three. I it's it's so intense, you know. Oh yeah. We Christoph Waltz is a is it an SS Nazi? Well, yes, uh, National Socialist, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. so he's, yeah. he's going around and he's trying to find people who are trying to protect and hide Jewish people um, away from, you know, being taken away and stuff like that. And he comes across this farm. No, not comes across. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a planned visit. Yes. Because there's several members of the Nazi army that come with him. Yeah, it's a handful of soldiers. I think a whole jeep um, in addition to his. Yeah. And they sit, the farmer has some time to get ready, ready himself because I think he's chopping wood yeah. or something. And he tells his one of his daughters to, to get him some water so he can wash himself up. And, you know, he's taking this time to think about what is he going to do, what's going to happen. And Christoph Waltz comes in and he's very cordial <laughs> and somewhat charming yes. at the same time and very don't mess with me as well. Like really holds, I don't know if that's the right word. I feel like it deserves more than that. But this is what I've got in my head. And sits down with this farmer and basically says how it's going to go. <laughs> sort of. I mean, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll let you uh, finish. And so a decision needs to be made by the farmer. Is he going to protect his family or are they all going to die? Mm. Because Christoph Waltz's character knows that the, he is being, there are Jewish people hiding somewhere. Mm. And then uh, the floor gets blown up uh, with guns, several guns going off at the same time, and somebody escapes. Mm-hmm. And Christoph Waltz isn't really that bothered by it because right. he knows he's very intelligent yeah and he knows how to play a long game and he's like i will see you later (laughs) it's like so long shoshana and it's just absolutely terrifying because you're following shoshana who's running across the field for her life and leaving everything behind and it's it's just it sets the stage for oh my god what is going to happen next yeah that's an excellent pick absolutely my third favorite is 1994's the lion king Oh, good choice. 
last one had to be on my list because we it's one of those where we've talked about it several times in the past. It's easily one of the most stirring pre-title sequences I've ever seen. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of animation I've ever seen. At the time, 1994, it was uh, the most gorgeous piece of, of, of nature animation ever ever seen on screen in in that i can never recall before or since and it's it's got this the of course all these animals coming together to witness the birth of the the lion prince simba and they bow and it's just this you, you see all these different walks of life you know elephants trampling and i think it's either like little rodents running in between or i think i think we see ants at some point too yeah you see ants moving along and so many things it's just with the song the circle of life playing it's absolutely stirring and it comes to a crescendo with a big thump and there you have the title and it is easily one of the most um stirring and moving pieces of film pieces of like four minutes of film or something like that I've ever seen in my life. It's great. Mm -hmm. Capital G great. So that's Lion King is my third favorite from 1994. My next one is the most recent Ghostbusters Afterlife. Interesting. Okay. From 2021. This was a beautiful opportunity to honor Harold Ramis's character, Egon Spangler and and just to honor him as well and I th- it took them a long time I think to come up with the script yes. and make sure it was doing just that they had good intentions and they had a strong impact with this film so I thought they did a great job but the opening scene in particular we get to see Harold Ramis in a way and the way it's shot is so beautiful and not we we know that he's dead like, we know that Harold Ramis is dead. Yes. The actor is dead. And what could have been a complete disaster wasn't. And it was filmed in such a beautiful way because we got to have Egon, but we also weren't trading this line of um, disrespecting Harold Ramis. Mm. Uh, in the way that it was shot, it was very dark. It was, you know, backlit, if, yeah. if any. And... What is happening is Egon is driving away really fast away from something that has this big title over it, the Shandor Mines. And so we're like, what's happening over there? And then he gets to his uh, farmhouse and he switches something and it fails and he dies. And eventually, yes. Yeah. The the demon dog is there and it's like, well, why is the demon dog there? And so it's very curious and it's... uh, the music is very similar to the first Ghostbusters score. Mm. And so anyone who is a fan of Ghostbusters is immediately taken back to that. It's just really beautiful and thrilling. Mm-hmm. It's like a huge adventure, not just like comedy slapstick. No, not at all. Not at all. But does that mean that you actually like that pre-tile sequence more than the original? Had I taken the time to go through my favorites of all time? That probably would have been on the list, but I do think I like Afterlife's better. Okay. Very good. My second favorite pre-title sequence is one of the most iconic in film history. It is also from 1996. 
<laughs> Apparently a great year for pre-title sequences. Good lord. It is Scream. Oh, okay, very good. Hello? Hello? Yes? Who is this? Mm, who are you trying to reach? What number is this? What number are you trying to reach? I don't know. Well, I think you have the wrong number. Do I? It happens. Take it easy. Hello? I'm sorry. I guess I dialed the wrong number. Uh, so why'd you dial it again? To apologize. You're forgiven. Bye now. Wait, wait. Don't hang up. What? I want to talk to you for a second. They've got 900 numbers for that. See ya. walks around and stalks babysitters. Yeah. What's yours? Guess. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Is that the one where the guy had knives for fingers? Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Freddy, that's right. I like that movie. It was scary. Well, well the first one was, but the rest sucked. So, you got a boyfriend? <laughs> Why? You want to ask me out on a date? Maybe. Do you have a boyfriend? Mm, no. Why do you want to know my name? Because I want to know who I'm looking at. What did you say? I want to know who I'm talking to. That's not what you said. What do you think I said? What? Hello? Look, I gotta go. Wait, I thought we were gonna go out. Uh, nah, I don't think so. Don't hang up on me. We see Drew Barrymore popping some popcorn alone in a fairly large house, mm -hmm. getting ready to watch a movie by herself when someone calls. And what starts out as innocent flirting soon becomes something quite sinister. But also, I get a little tingle because this, this movie is like great for cinephiles, right? This pre-tile sequence, because what is the famous question that Casey, played by Drew Barrymore, is asked? What's your favorite scary movie? That's right. Yeah. Even you got that. Hesitantly. She gets quizzed <laughs> on, on, on scary movies. Ah, yes. Yes, she's her, not believed to be a fangirl, so her, she gets questioned. Well, to her death. life she gets questioned to death. Literally mm. depends on her knowledge of horror films. It's a perfect example of fanboy bullshit. Well, also known as gatekeeping, but still. Yes. 
That's before that was even a thing and a term. So anyway, it's great. It's 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 absolutely horrifying. It's very scary. It's very intense. It's also horrible as things go the way they go because Casey's parents start coming up. You know, it looks like her parents actually would have interrupted her 20 minutes into her movie had things gone how Casey planned. (laughs) And that would have been annoying. But it's it's uh, it does end quite tragically. And it's it's um, one hell of an opening for a horror film. And it's it's got to be one of the greatest openings of any horror film in the history of horror. That is Scream from 1996. How can anyone not have it on their list? It is my second favorite pre-title sequence. Shanna? Well, it's not Scream. <laughs> we, number one. we have only had two overlaps, I think. Yeah. This entire list is your favorite pre-title sequence and overlap. Yes. Ooh, which, which which other nine of mine is <laughs> yours? It is The Lion King. It is The Lion King. You did land on The Lion yeah, King. Yeah, how okay. could I not have that at the top? It was one of my first visits to the movie cinema. And it was a very exciting time because... As South Africans, we knew that we were all, you know, beyond apartheid. We knew we were all about animals and lions. And, you know, our money had been printed in such a way that the 10, the 10 bill was the buffalo and like the, tw- I don't know, I'm going to mess it up now, but it's basically the top five. The animals get printed on the money. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to, I don't know. I'm rambling. Anyway, so... A uh, very important film. You've described it so beautifully. Uh, what I saw was a sort of representation, even though there were no people in this film yeah. or in this opening sequence. And it's set it, in Kenya. Thank you for constantly reminding me that South Africa will never be good enough. It will always be about Kenya and no one else <laughs> in that freaking continent anyway it it felt like representation it felt really cool honestly being the young me i thought i was seeing the drakensberg mountain not the mountain in kenya which escapes me right now but is it called pride rock it's not called pride rock (laughs) i'm pretty sure of that okay (laughs) but it felt so cool it felt relatable it felt like where i was living was exciting Mm. most of my life i would see like american television and movies and be like i want to go there where the tv is and this was kind of a moment like that for me for the african continent so it, it felt really cool um it's just beautiful i i love how they made all these animals really important from the insects to the lions. So the whole spectrum is this representation, you know? Oh, good Lord. And everybody, it is, it is, Um, you know, you learn about animals very quickly in school as a South African and you learn about life cycles and how everything's interconnected. So it was just really great that they were doing that in the first few minutes. So I loved it. Awesome. Obviously, I'm a fan as well. My absolute favorite pre-title sequence, however, is also an overlap. Uh. It is 
That's Dracula. Also from 2009. Oh. It is Quentin Tarantino's F. Inglorious Bastards. Got it wrong four times, three times. What were you going to say? I, 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 I said like, I said, is it Dracula? No. And then I had several others that got it wrong. So anyway. So Inglorious Bastards, you know, as you're trying to explain, this thing is not only a great piece of writing, as was the case with From Dust Till Dawn and Reservoir Dogs, also on my list, uh, but the it's it's just this amazing thing where it like it starts out. Like it, this you, it gives you this safe, this this false sense of security, right? Even though you're literally, this guy is literally talking to a Nazi officer. The way he is, his his interacting, he's so pleasant, he's so mm-hmm. charming. There's nothing sinister about him at all for at the start, except for <laughs> his freaking uniform and the people who are with him, right? Yeah, and. This is got this is so brilliant. This guy is working his way, taking his time. This whole sequence takes its time. As you mm-hmm. said, you know, you have the guy washing his hands and and once he sees the jeeps coming in, he walks in and all this sort of stuff. Now the dialogue is really taking its time and it's an example of monotonous dialogue slowly turning into something unsettling. And greatly unnerving, mm, mm-hmm. right? Greatly unnerving. It's yes. it's at, it just Lovely. slowly twists the the screws on you, oh, uh, as it goes along to something absolutely terrifying and horrifying. And then, as you said, what happens? It happens with the floorboards being shot up, and you have this the score screaming at mm-hmm. you as this happens, and as Shoshana's running away. It's just absolutely magnificent filmmaking. Absolutely top-shelf writing. It is... The best opening or, or pre-title sequence on my entire list. I had to have it at the top. Mm-hmm. And it is also one of the greatest films I've ever seen mm-hmm. you know, overall. So Inglorious Bastards is my number one favorite pre-title sequence. And those are our lists. Shanna, this was a challenge, was it not? Very challenging. Do you want to talk about what you left off your list? That's where I was going with it. Dracula didn't make your list. It did not. Was there any, um, as I get up mine, was there any that uh, you had to leave off? Um, I had to leave off a Mission Impossible. I left off Bumblebee. I left off several that you mentioned, actually. Mm. Left off Beauty and the Beast. That is a surprise. That was one that, it was either Skyfall or Beauty and the Beast for me. I see. Um, that was, I mean, I don't think that Disney movies, they don't do it very often. No, I, I'm trying to even think of one, another Disney movie that has a pre-title sequence and I'm, I'm really having a hard time with that. Um, but uh, this one I was I keep great. thinking of Finding Nemo, but that's Pixar. Right, right. Okay. That's a heartbreaking one. <laughs> and, and that is a pre-title sequence, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, for, I, I thought about that, and I wasn't sure if that one qualified. But yes, Beauty and the Beast was definitely one for me. Uh, were there any others for you? 
No, I, I think that was it for me. Uh, Kinsman actually had a pretty good one, but it was also very short. Yeah. And yeah. and not incredibly memorable. It was just I liked how you had explosions happening and then the rocks that were exploded off of the building became the titles. Not not quite the not, titles. Not titles, it, it, sorry. Who was... It went as far as saying, like, so-and-so presents, right? Uh, Something yeah. like that. And then you had the scene, and then... It, uh, where uh, Augie gets presented with this little mill and you know call for any any time for help, and then it eventually goes into the actual title itself, mm-hmm. right? Thought about that. Not even close to making my list though. Aside from Beauty and the Beast, barely edging off my list. Hudsucker Proxy. Oh yes, yes. Very where you see Norville. Uh, it's a very slow camera movement through the city to this skyscraper, and you see Norville come out onto the ledge of the skyscraper. Meanwhile, we have this uh, low baritone narrator uh, talking to us. Uh, That eventually crescendos to the title. Mission Impossible 3, I decided, was my favorite pre-title of that series, with this incredibly intense sequence of Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt being strapped to a chair and someone he clearly cares greatly about having a gun to her head with Philip Seymour Hoffman in control of that gun, in control of the situation, counting down from 10. That is extremely, the the most effective of all the pre-tile sequences. Uh, One of the shortest, too. The Matrix I thought of, uh, I believe it starts with um, with Trinity. Trinity, thank you. Uh, I was like Neo, no Trinity. The whole thing that introduces the whole concept where she suspends in the air and kicks some cop ass, and we're like, what the hell? Bram Stoker's Dracula I considered, but it was further down the list. A couple of others that you mentioned, Children of Men, also was one that almost made my list with that opening mm. tracking shot that starts That's in the coffee good. shop and all these people watching the newscast in the coffee shop and Clive Owen walks out of the coffee shop and he gets like maybe 30, 50 feet and when that coffee shop blows up. Yes. You know, uh, that was a really great one. And then other ones I considered Pulp Fiction with the uh, discussion about what, what is actually worth robbing and, you know... <laughs> Because um, those discussions matter too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, with uh, gosh, what's her name? Not Love Bunny, but Honey Bunny. Yeah, Honey, Honey Bunny. Bunny, and I can't remember the other name. Uh, Social Network. It starts with a breakup uh, with Rooney Mara uh, at this bar on college campus or near college campus, and then it just kind of goes on from there. Other uh, other options, but they they didn't really compare for me to those several ones I just mentioned. So mm-hmm. those are the ones. It was, it was a tough task. And then on top of that, trying to organize the list, you know, in such a way I won't have any regrets. You know, that's a whole other ball of wax. So, But what are your favorite pre-title sequences? These are ours. These are the ones that we considered. What comes to your mind that you absolutely love? Feel free to email us at thegivesandreview at gmail.com. That'll do it for this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shannon, before we talk about the next couple episodes, where can people find you online? You can find me at Shanna Paxton Photography on Instagram and then Spellbinding A on Flickchart. Go to thegibsonreview.com. You should see by the time this episode hits your ears, 
an article about the Muppets. I rank and review every single theatrically released Muppet movie. I believe there's eight of them. That was a very uh, kind of a nice, fun thing to kind of go through and revisit some of these movies uh, and see which ones actually hold up, which ones were stronger than others. Follow on social media, facebook.com slash the Gibson Review or Instagram, the Gibson 99. I do bracket polls there. You should see a poll very soon about pre-title sequences where you can chime in and vote among a couple dozen uh, pre-title sequences. Which one is your favorite of all time? Uh, you'll also be kept in the know about our episodes and other things coming down the line. Okay, so next time on The Movie Lovers, we are starting over our three-episode arc with the Weekend Review. What have we been watching over the last couple weeks? Look for that episode on Tuesday, March 14th. And then, I think our next review episode, I think, will be a review of Creed 3. That episode will be on March 21st and then we will finish this three episode arc with our favorite movies that make us cry oh we are okay great now this has been sitting on the docket for a year and a half okay this is one that's going to be it's going to be a tough one to get through folks (laughs) yeah so bring the tissues on March 28th for that episode. <laughs> Until oh then. Boy. Yep. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye bye.